Ben nearly died because of you. Please wake up, Mother! Donald, come here. No, Mother. You're a bad boy. You're evil, and you must be punished. I'm burning the out of you. Why don't you come on in and say hello to Mother? No, no. Oh, oh, she'll get a kick out of it, and then we could go. You're all bitches, selfish and vain. Don't you dare laugh at me. If I was bad, she burned me. Two live ones, man. And let me tell you, they are dynamite. Well, I, I was looking for something you could wear to a, a disco. I think it's a dynamite outfit. Really? I tried being nice, but every one of you took advantage! Suzanne, this is really weird! Please help! Michael, don't worry, Michael. We're here now. Hi, this is Debbie Sue Voorhees, Tina from Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, and you're listening to The Hysteria Continues. And indeed you are. Welcome back to the show. Uh, this time, uh, we're getting ready for a Disco Inferno with Joseph Ellison's infamous Don't Go in the House, uh, the, um, the video nasty, and uh, every critic's darling of 1980. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be covering that um, a little later. But uh, we're also joined on the show um, by longtime supporter of the show, uh, Leo Dean. So, Leo, we're delighted to have you on the show. I hope the feeling's reciprocated. Most definitely, guys. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate the invite. Um, I'm looking forward to, to discussing this infamous film. By the way, I just got struck by boogie lightning. I did you? you must have had a cheery childhood. <laughs> Yeah, you could say it was kind of cheery. Well, yes. So, uh, Leo, this I think this is your you. you um, uh, this is a film you wanted us to cover, wasn't it? So, I'm looking forward to hearing your insights on the movie a little bit later. But I also wanted to say thank you to another friend of the show, Phil Morrison, uh, who is the co-author of Alone in the Dark. It's the upcoming anthology. Well, not anthology. It's omnibus, I guess. Of uh, I think he. Um, well, they've they've kind of put to mind over the last few years to try and review every single slasher movie ever released so that's kind of upcoming it's going to be probably the size of not just a coffee table but probably the size of a coffee table by the sound of it so uh thank you phil for um getting that uh, sound clip of debbie sue Voorhees uh introducing the show so very much appreciate it um so uh yeah how are you all doing the rest of us um eric how are you doing oh i'm doing very 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 good Excellent. And have you ever gone to a shop and bought disco threads? Um, probably not disco threads. Uh, for my own home disco, listening to my Toya albums. Because, Justin, you're probably not going to believe this, but whenever I've been to a nightclub, they don't really play Toya albums or records. I find that very difficult to believe. Yeah, I know. It's a strange world we live in. Do you think the young people of uh, today would know who Toya was? Of course they would. She's on Celebrity Cash in the Attic and Celebrity Antiques Road Trip every other day. But do you think the trendy young things are watching Celebrity Cash in the Attic? I assume so. I'm a, I'm a trendy young thing and I watch it. Well, yes, we'll draw a veil over that. But uh, thank you, Eric, anyway. A and black veil. So, um, sort of, Nathan, uh, is uh, are you looking forward to this? Are you uh, kind of, could you see yourself in the, in the background of the disco scene in Don't Go in the House? Well, I, I don't know if I was born yet, but um, if if disco, you know, made a comeback, then yes, definitely, because I, I like disco a lot. Yeah. I just, I don't want my hair set on fire, though. Well, see, the thing is, that's sort of the thing I thought about this film, because it was the height of polyester, wasn't it? And um, that's not flame retardant, unfortunately, as we found out mm-hmm. in the movie. So, um, and Joseph, are you ready for a disco inferno? 
Mm, boogie down, baby. <laughs> wow, that's his smoothest lines. Yeah. So I can see you uh, chatting up some uh, young lady in the club with one of those in your best uh, John Travolta. It's happened. <laughs> Well, before we get on to the main feature, obviously we always discuss um, what we've been watching recently. So, Leo, as our guest of honour, is there anything you've seen recently you want to tell us about? Nah, not too much in the horror field. I was, you know, rewatching this movie a few times just to refresh since it's been a couple, you know, six months since I've seen it. Um, I did see the re- recent. I did see uh, Dune, which is not really horror, but um, I thought it was boring because I do like the David Lynch film. Um, thought it was a little long-winded. Um, two hours and 40 minutes, whatever it was, I found myself staring at my phone, a little bored by it. Um, but other than that, uh, Dexter, I've been watching Dexter. I thought, you know, I watched the first four episodes. I thought it was pretty good because I did love the, you know, the original run. Hmm. And the only other thing I could think of is, um, I did watch the Texas chainsaw massacre trailer for, I guess the Netflix show that's coming on in February. Um, supposedly it's a direct sequel. I guess they're going the Halloween route. Um, you know, the other ones I guess don't exist uh, from what I read. So, but other than that, um, no, that's about it. But did you guys see that uh, trailer? Yeah, we were talking about that because obviously, uh, young Nathan is, is the Texas chainsaw mega fan. You had some hot thoughts, didn't you, on that, Nathan? Yes, I'm extremely excited. I'm excited for any, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw movie. Um, I mean, some are better than others, but um, I'm, you know, very excited to see this one. But is it? does it look like, as I've seen people talking about Stranger Things, but it looks, I mean, as far as I, from what I can tell, it looks like it's set in the 1980s. Yeah, you know, it, it does. It does have the feel of the original. Like you see, like direct scenes, like you know, like he, he, Leatherface kind of looks the same. Um, it doesn't look like they, you know, brought it updated. I don't know how far into the future. If it's a direct sequel, I guess maybe into the eighties doesn't really give you a timeline. But it looks, it has the feel of the original, the look of it. Um, as far as uh, Leatherface's clothing and you know, like hold, at the end of the trailer, he's holding up the mask, you know. And, um, but I mean, it, 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 I can't really tell if it's in the '80s or if it's you know maybe a couple of years because the original one's what 1974, I believe. Yeah, that's right. I, th- I think I, I think it looks like from what I can tell, it looks like it's uh, in the '80s. And I think the synopsis from what I can read is that Leatherface is um, becomes a functioning member of society and uh, does good deeds until he's driven back to his old ways what the fuck premise is that (laughs) (laughs) i didn't want to say it but i was thinking the exact same thing as joseph (laughs) well i I think we would have to wait to see if the proof is in the pudding because um texas as we know and as uh, nathan as a mega fan knows that um the the franchise has gone off and spiraled off into all sorts of different strange territories isn't it over the the last couple of decades but i guess they couldn't really set it in the modern times because um leatherface would be in his 80s wouldn't he or something sort of leatherface in a wheelchair i don't know isn't michael myers in his 70s now so it's like the difference is negligible yeah although arguably um leatherface uh, michael myers is like a supernatural being whereas leatherface is not so um so uh but anyway uh so yeah that's that's coming up so that'll be interesting to see i don't know talking of june i mean i have to be honest i've no interest in watching that really because i just it just looks very um tedious um i people who are into it great but i just found it all looks very very pretentious but uh the one thing i did i don't know i just based on hysteria lives today the on the facebook page there was an article in the los angeles times from 1980 um and talking about the burgeoning um boom of horror movies and in that it actually mentions it's about david lynch being uh being up for directing halloween 2 
I saw you mention that, yeah. Can you imagine what a David wow. Lynch Halloween 2 would have been like? Oh, boy. Yeah, because this was coming... I'm trying to think, what what had he made at that point? I mean, it was a razor head. An elephant man he'd done. That, was a, that would have been a strange... I can't imagine he would have come off something like the elephant man into Halloween 2, can you? It seems like mind-boggling. But anyway, that was... that Because I'd always heard... I'd heard that rumour before, but the fact is the Los Angeles Times was actually uh, mentioning that as um, as their list of upcoming horror movies, and it was a David Lynch directed um, under the, the under the watchful eye of John Carpenter Halloween 2. So obviously that didn't happen, but uh, who knows what that would have been like. But uh, um, Eric, have you watched June yet? No, I'm, I've often seen the David Lynch one either, but it just looks like one of those fantasy world-building sci-fis that don't really float my boat, kind of like Star Wars. But um, I'm intrigued to see the David Lynch one more than I am to see the new one. I saw... I can't remember the director's name, but he did the Blade Runner sequel as well, which I found a bit um, po-faced and a bit meh. And it went as um, Leo was saying that the like the Blade Runner sequel went on for about two and a half hours as well, and it's only very certain films I can that can hold my attention for that long. Bob Hoskins ones usually, <laughs> yes, of course. But I kind of again, I just that that whole thing of these three hour, two and a half hour, three hour bloated um, sort of messages of the movie. Well, not messages of the movie, but you just think. I still think if you can't tell a good story in ninety minutes, you know, well. Do you remember when we used to talk about these movies for two and a half hours? <laughs> yes. Um, but um, Eric, what, is there anything you've been watching? You want to t- tell us about? What are you? Are you insinuating I am a bloated mess? I mean, it's true, <laughs> but it's very rude of you to say it. No, I was talking about like our piece. Was it like pieces? It may have been our the most bloated of them all, possibly. The drunk cast uh, Halloween uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween Two was definitely the the longest recording session. Anyway, um, yes. Yeah, so I saw Godzilla versus Kong last night. Uh, it's just appeared over here on Sky Cinema, and uh, I know you've seen it, Justin. You said it was okay, and you. But it kind of grabbed you that much because I remember you were saying you were discussing about how big would King Kong's poos be. Um, uh, now, I was not a fan of King of the Monsters, which was the previous Godzilla movie to this. Um, this one I found more enjoyable. It, I mean, it still is two giant beings hitting each other repeatedly and knocking down buildings um, for 100 minutes. But it's certainly more colourful. Than the previous film, uh, particularly when they visit Hollow Earth, and it's it has this sort of brightly coloured flora and fauna, and um, and then the climactic fight in Hong Kong, which is filled with sort of neon buildings and that. So it was more of a treat from the eyes, and it is it is literally just a hundred minutes, which is quite short by blockbuster standards these days. So it, it you know it passed by fairly quickly. I uh, can't say I'm a huge fan of this this series of Godzilla and Kong movies, but uh, I thought it was watchable. And certainly I thought it was a big improvement on King of the Monsters. Um, the only other thing I saw was uh, picked up the Blu-ray of Phantom of the... I was going to say Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Arrow have just put it out on a double-disc uh, edition. Uh, I've watched the film and one of the extras and it looks great and the extras are kind of fun um and uh, our friends uh, amanda reyes and dan budnick are involved in the extras in this one well worth picking up there's a wonderful booklet and a poster that comes with it the second disc has a tv version of the movie which apparently has lots of different scenes haven't got a chance to watch it yet um so looking forward to all of that uh, if you're a fan of uh, my revenge um, Phantom of the Mall, then uh, it's definitely worth picking up. It's a particularly handsome looking set. 
Excellent. Okay. Is there anything else you want to mention? Well, I have seen one other film, but I think somebody else is probably going to mention that, and I'll just chime in. Right. Well, thank you. Um, uh, young Nathan, how about you? Um, let's see. I've been watching a lot of stuff I've already seen, like The Fun House, which I love. But um, uh, one that's not really much horror, but it's still wonderfully cheesy, I watched was um, Bad Girls Dormitory. I mean, it's one of the most ridiculous, like, women in prison movies I've ever seen because uh, these women who are definitely not teenagers, but are supposed to be teenagers. And it's like they have parties with guys dancing at the reform school. I mean, it's just re- totally like absurd, but, and, and all of them wear um, tank tops that are basically see-through. So it's, um, it's just totally ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun. It's like Bad Girls Sorority more than more than Bad Girls Dormitory. I mean, it is it is like the room of sorority house. I haven't seen it. Is that one? Is that got um, the Wendy O. Williams in it, or is that a different? No, that's Reform School Girls. Uh, how could I get them mixed up? <laughs> Leo, have you had the pleasure of that one? Um, no, I no, I have not. Sounds interesting though, but uh, I know definitely Nathan. I love Nathan's taste, so that's definitely one of them. <laughs> down as i'm uh, sitting here i'm going to write down anything you guys say that i haven't seen but um i haven't seen that one but i did see uh, i did also get the uh, phantom of the mall which is a beautiful set and amanda's commentary is, uh, is fantastic yeah i'm, I'm looking f- looking forward to listening to that yeah she's brilliant she's fantastic yeah absolutely but yeah the night this actually the set actually over here um my friend wanted to get it, and it seems to be on the second market because I guess you know Arrow does those limited things with the boxes, and it's going for upwards of over a hundred dollars right now. So excellent. Okay, so anything else, Nathan? Um, like Eric, there's another one, but I'm sure it'll be brought up, so we can discuss then. Okay, uh, Joseph, do you want to go next, or do you want me to? Well, I mean, you go ahead because the only thing I've seen is um, the same this movie, famous so. one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's. Uh, well, as I think we've all seen it now. Um, Interesting if Leo's seen it, but I'll just mention a couple of the ones that I've uh, watched. I recently reviewed um, the 1980 movie Italian movie Trauma, spelt very strangely. Trauma. Trauma. Yes, which is yeah. a uh, well, 1980 movie, but it's uh, interesting because it's a giallo, uh, but it is very much influenced by Halloween and American slash movies. Uh, so it's very much more set up as a um, as a, as a slasher movie in the shallows. So it's like a one by one body count of a group of friends and frenemies who are staying at a remote uh, country uh, villa, and then being bumped off by uh, a madman who has an obsession with Lego, which is um, very strange. So it's the only movie I've ever seen where the um, the killer's motivation is is building a giant Lego castle in his basement. So, it's a pretty impressive Lego castle. It is. I'm kind of wondering how many other people he'd killed to get it, get it that big by that point. But uh, but yes, so it has its some twists and turns. It's kind of it's very low budget, um, but I quite I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, uh, I, and it also it features. I can't remember the actor's name, but the one from uh, Strip Nude for Your Killer, uh, the Jalo from 1975, the the larger gentleman who in this strips down to his boxes and jumps into a pool. Um, and yeah, there's lots of fun and sleaze and uh, all sorts going on in that one. Did you actually watch that, Nathan, in the end? I did. I did. Mm. And I enjoyed it. Um, you posted some of the highlights, though, the uh, the acting and the one scene. I can't remember the character's name, but 
Sylvia. Well, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Was it Sylvia? I think it was Sylvia. Her real names, okay. again, you always know in movies where they haven't taken that much effort when they actually call the characters by their real first name. They couldn't be bothered to come up with a, an alternative name for them. Hey, that happens all the time in Nathan's movies. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Casting no shade, but I, it was, um, yeah, that acting was, that was a masterclass because she was actually a, a stage actress. And I just love the fact that she was acting for the stage rather than for movies. Everything was over, everything was bigger, larger than life. All her, you know, all her facial, um, uh, you know, all her expressions were done sort of like almost like silent movie type sort of stage acting so um so that's yeah that's definitely one to to check out talking of a surprising Italian, ending too well the ending was yeah i mean it won't give away the ending but the ending was quite um dark wasn't it yeah i'm um, especially considering the film has it starts with that disco song doesn't it which is really um over the top about and it sounds like Minnie mouse uh, singing let's dance uh, and then ends on a very portentous Bible quote with a rather downbeat ending. So I don't know what it was about those um, those films around the time, like Burial Ground, all those movies. They had all these kind of all these kind of um, quotes, didn't they? From I don't know, sort of like um, either from the Bible or from some ancient text or something. And I think did the Beyond have it? Maybe the Beyond started it. Maybe that was what they were all borrowing from. But uh, but talking of Italian sleaze, I also, I'm just about to, well, I will this week publish a review of Arabella Black Angel, the Stelvio Massi uh, Giallo from 1989. Um, and I think we've spoken about this before, about how I, I like myself, like Joseph as well, like, I mean, I used to hate um, the kind of later 80s horror movies and uh, Jali, but I kind of grown to an appreciation for them. But this one is like super, super, super stupid in the best possible way and very, very sleazy. It's about an infomaniac housewife whose husband is um, in a wheelchair because um, she gave him a blowjob on a, their wedding day and he crashed the car. <laughs> I got to see this. <laughs> so she goes to sex parties um, and uh, she gets arrested by a cop who then basically rapes her. And uh, she kind of he fight, tracks her down. But her husband is so turned on by the fact that she's having sex with other men that um, he, uh, he, he basically um, encourages her to do that. But she kills the cop with a hammer. And then someone starts going around um, killing people with a pair of scissors uh, who are involved with her and cutting off their genitals. So anyway, it's a, it's a good time for all the family, that one. Um, so very, very silly, very um, over the top. That's one of my childhood favourites. Is it? Yes. <laughs> it sounds like my childhood, actually. Well, Vinica Syndrome are releasing it, I think, next year. So, because uh, the version I've seen, I think it's the only one available. It's dubbed into English, and it's got the kind of immortal line somewhere saying um, this kind of comedy cop kind of says to his um, his uh, the inspector, uh, you know, about the murder scene. He says something like, oh, the place is full of blood and someone's cut off this guy's dong. So it's it's that kind of movie. So um, very silly and very over the top. But uh, yeah, I think you'd have a lot of fun with it if you get a chance to watch it. Um, talking of over the top, I bizarrely, it's a film that I've kind of avoided. And bizarrely, Stuart wanted to watch the Human Centipede um, sequels. I don't know why. And I hadn't seen it before. Its reputation had preceded it because I know it kind of got banned in the UK. And um, I think I saw the full uncut version and it certainly was a sight to see. It's it's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. Um, that isn't a recommendation necessarily. Have any of you guys had the uh, dubious pleasure of watching Human Centipede 2? Yes. Yes. That movie could go fuck itself right now. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> 
What did you think, Leo? Uh, uh, the first one was enough, but I did I did watch the second one, and like Justin said, it's disgusting. It's you know, it's really rough to watch. My wife actually yelled at me, said, "What the hell are you watching this shit for?" She she got so disgusted by it, and I I plowed through and watched it, but agreed. I mean, it's something I would definitely never watch again. Is it in black and white, or am I misremembering it? Well, this is funny, because I saw it, it was in colour, um, but I think it was released either totally in black and white, or they did like the similar thing they did in the um, uh, the Kill Bill. I couldn't watch most of it, I was just doing something else while it was on, because I thought, and when it started with the, um, the he gave them all laxatives, didn't he, I think? And then it was all, it was like pebble dashing everywhere. <laughs> I it's I mean it's I I don't know with that film what they were trying to do it seems like he was kind of it was like a black comedy wasn't it I mean it even ends with that that pregnant woman getting away and um and uh, giving birth to a baby who she squashes under the accelerator it's just so over the top but anyway but uh, Joseph uh, tell us what the one that I think the rest of us seen this curious if Leo's seen it yet okay well um, I watched last night in Soho which is the Edgar Wright movie it's Edgar Wright isn't it yeah yeah um I'm not gonna say much about it because I don't want to spoil it for people who have not seen it and if you've not seen the trailers or any kind of promotional material count yourself lucky and just go watch it because uh it's a fantastic film it's my favorite of the year so far even better than Malignant and I love Malignant a lot so um I'll let you guys chime in if you want I mean it's just it's a man what they've done with that time period is just incredible have you seen it Leah no, you know, it played over here, you know, it was only here for like maybe a week and a half. And unfortunately, with all my doctor's appointments for my hip surgery, I couldn't get to see it. But I did pre-order it on Amazon because I've heard so many good things about it and it looks amazing. Um, but now, unfortunately, I haven't seen it. OK, well, it'll be interesting to see what you think uh, about it. But um, Eric, uh, what were your thoughts? Oh, I absolutely loved it. Um I didn't know much about it going in, and as as Joseph said, it's probably best to not know a huge amount. But just if you're a horror fan and you're sitting there waiting for the horror to happen, don't worry. It get you know the horror elements do come in in the latter half. The first half is more of a, uh, a country girl who's not terribly streetwise coming to the big city to try and uh, make it in the fashion world, and uh, it's it's quite fun. And then she's having these flashbacks to the 60s, and I thought that the character of Sandy, who's this cool um, epitome of 60s uh, female singer, fashion model, whatever, uh, I thought she was uh, particularly uh, watchable in the film. I thought she was outstanding. The just the I don't know her screen presence I thought was terrific um the film I suppose has a kind of fever dream aspect to it at times where you're not quite sure where this is all leading to kind of like a jallo and it, it, it um sometimes fever dream movies can annoy me in that they get too confusing and I, I disengage from them and, and that's when I end up sort of playing word games on my iPhone or something but uh, this one kept me engaged. It just kept, it, it walked that, f- you know, it's a fine line with a fever dream movie for me between being too uh, weird and, uh, you know, as I said, losing my interest. But this one didn't. I thought it, it got the balance perfectly spot on. And uh, I like for the most part, I, d- I felt it was very different to Edgar Wright's other films. But then once the final 30 minutes kicked in, I thought, OK, this, this is I can see Edgar Wright shining through now in, in this section. But overall, I just thought it was outstanding. And as you said, the scenes set in 1960s London were just, you know, a pure eye candy, I thought. 
Yes, I, well, I thought they it was amazing though the way they recreated Soho in the nineteen uh, like nineteen sixty four. It was kind of I mean it was just you know it was spellbinding. Um, but curious, Nathan, you've you've had a chance to watch it, haven't you? Yes, I watched it last night, and like you guys, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a great movie, um, totally unexpected. Like I had no idea where it was going, and um, like Joseph, I don't want to say too much because um, it's just one of those movies that you need to experience without knowing too much of the plot. And yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I thought it was great. And hands up, Justin, I will say that there is excellent use of Happy House by Susie and the Banshees on the soundtrack. There's a great nightclub scene where the song is playing. Well, they used it really well, didn't they? Even though it's not a 1960s yeah. thing, but it was like it's set in, because half of it's set in the modern times and half of it's kind of flashbacks yeah. or or kind of without giving too much away. But obviously that's part of the, the you know, you can tell from the trailers that there's a kind of like a kind of time switch between the modern times and the mid-1960s in London. Um, but yeah, the, the, I, the Susan the Banshees, um, club scene, I thought that was very well done the way, the way it was all cut together. So, but yeah, maybe we'll talk about it a bit more whenever more people have a chance to watch it. So anyway, hopefully, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a shame because it's not, from what I can tell, it hasn't done particularly well at the box office. So I don't think it's necessarily connected with audiences, which is a shame. Um, because oh. it's, uh, films like this, uh, you know, I say it's, it played at cinemas here, so it's been, um, you know, it's, it, it just doesn't seem to have connected in the same way as um, his other films like Baby Driver and Shaun of the Dead. Um, whereas exp- I, I, I kind of expect, I mean, a film like Baby Driver was very much a typical American kind of sort of crime, heist, very highly stylized kind of um, sort of heist movie. But uh, this is maybe it just didn't touch audiences, which is a real shame. But um, hey, ho, you can't win them all. It got good reviews, though, from what I was reading. So I think it barely broke 10 million in the Ameri- in the United States. So, mm-hmm. well, but um, but there you go. So, um, okay. Uh, well, um, I think it's time to get to the main feature. So, Eric, you'll bring us back in after this. But um, here is a TV spot for 1980s Don't Go Into the House. Don't enter the corridors of a twisted mind. If you go forward, you'll find insanity. If you climb these stairs, you're heading for madness. And soon, you'll share the terrifying secret behind this door in the Room of Steel. Don't go in the house. But if you do, don't say we didn't warn you. Don't go in the house, rated R. In a steel room built for revenge, they die burning in chains. Donnie is a disturbed kid, a mother's boy, if you will. That is, until Mother expires and Donnie's world crumbles in on itself. Now, lonely adrift and enslaved to dark voices in his head, Donnie seeks female companionship, but drinks and dancing are the last thing on his mind. Mother's telling him he's a bad boy and the voices won't let him rest. Maybe if he just gets a girl home and into his steel-lined burning chamber, the chatter might quieten down. And that's um, the Arrow DVD release, which came out in 2011 and looks really good, actually. Uh, I know it's coming to Blu-ray in the coming months from, uh, is it Severn? I'm not sure. Uh, Anyway, for a long time, films like Don't Go in the House were ones I kind of wasn't that pushed on. Uh, These types of slasher movies from the late 70s, early 80s, the ones that have the, the villain as the central character and the good guys are kind of peripheral they didn't float my boat but over the years i have grown to really really like them particularly christmas evil 
which is one we discussed a couple of years back. Uh, I also, you know, have grown to like Love Maniac and Don't Answer the Phone. Um, but I think Don't Go in the House is probably one of the best of them. I mean, it, on the surface, it's quite grim. But I find there's kind of a popcorn element to the film also that's possibly missing from something like Maniac. It might be the copious use of disco music. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. Um, but this, you know, despite one central scene in the film, and we'll, we all know what I'm talking about there, that's really quite disturbing. This feels a little bit more mainstream than the others. You know, our character of Donnie, who we learn at the outset, is this kind of outcast. He doesn't seem to connect with his work colleagues who view him as a weirdo. Um, you know, probably for good reason, as one of his, one of his co-workers is accidentally set alight and he just looks on and doesn't help. But, we you know, we kind of learn his background then that his mother used to hold his arms above naked flames to punish him when he was young. And now he has this kind of bizarre relationship with fire and with women and with his own mother. So, you know, it's borrowing heavily from Psycho, I suppose. Uh, I like the scene where his... This, that's, this sounds awful, this sentence, when I say it out loud. It's I like the scene where his mother dies. Um, but the scene where he finds her dead and he goes off the rails a bit... You know, it's quite playful at first. His initial reaction is kind of like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. He sort of bounces around the house and jumps up and down in a chair and he plays his disco records and uh, he smokes a cigarette. Um, But things then take a sinister turn and, uh, you know, the previously mentioned scene is a real showstopper. Uh, He lures this florist back to his house, knocks her unconscious, holds her captive in this metal room he's constructed and he blasts her with a flamethrower in an effect that is so disturbingly realistic. I mean, it's all done with um, mirrors and prisms and stuff, but it just looks like this woman has been torched as if it's like a snuff movie. And it's quite distressing to watch. And it's this, you know, for this reason that the film ended up on the Video Nasties list in the UK back in the 80s. Um, the film seems to have a lot of elements of other films that were around at the time. The disco scene, is it's almost like an outtake from Prom Night. Uh, and the scenes where Donnie imagines his victims coming back to life is very much like Maniac. But I'm assuming nothing is, there's no accusations of plagiarism here because they were all in production around the same time. Um, and even the title, it was originally titled The Burning, but I can't imagine they changed it to Don't Go in the House because of the Cropsey movie because this was out long before that was being filmed, as far as I can tell. And maybe we'll get into more on that in the background. Okay, and I was going to say, I do know the reason, if you want me as a little aside about, because I saw the, yeah. about the, the burning, but it was because it was picked up by Film Ventures uh, and the producer had already got an ad campaign for a film called Don't Go in the House, which didn't exist. Uh, the reason, one of the, the, well, basically the selling points of it, he said, I'll, I'll distribute your film, um, but you need to change the, uh, the title to Don't Go in the House because I've already got an ad campaign uh, set to go for that, for that title. Okay, perfect. That solves that conundrum. Um, one thing I noticed actually on viewing this film is that two characters use the phrase dynamite to d- the character of Donnie. Now, I, I included both clips in the intro at the start of the podcast. You know, one person was describing some hot girls uh, as dynamite and another one was referring to a suit that was dynamite. And I'm, I'm assuming that was intentional, you know, to use the word dynamite to this sort of pyromaniac character. I thought it was quite clever. Um and the film also has something to say, albeit very bluntly, about violence begetting violence. And, uh, you know, and it does 
quite a good job, in my opinion, as good as Christmas Evil does, of painting its its character in, in a slightly sympathetic tone. I mean, we don't condone him um, torturing all, the, all these women in his steel room, obviously not, but... It gives, I suppose, it makes the villain a bit more three dimensional than you know Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, um, you know. And the film ends with a coda that hints that there's there's plenty of room for sequels as as you know children all over the world are being mistreated. Uh, but apart from the one really shocking moment, I think the film's actually kind of restrained. I don't think it's as, as depressing either as as maybe its reputation suggests. I mean, it's not a laugh riot by any means. Um, you know, you're not going to be giggling at it in the same way as we do with things like Pieces or um, Don't Go in the Woods. But, I mean, there's, I suppose, a certain camp value to the discotheque sequence uh, where one woman is a bit too insistent about dragging Donnie onto the dance floor and she, she ends up getting her hair set alight for her troubles. In another effect that's actually quite well done, because it doesn't look like it was done with a body double, uh, from what I could tell. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Don't Go in the House and... Uh, Leo, you're probably an even bigger fan, I believe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, of course, obviously, I didn't see this in the theater. I would have been too young at the time. Um, but uh, back in the early '80s, we had over here, uh, which I think still exists, is the Movie Channel. I believe. I think it exists in some form. I don't know who owns it, Showtime or whatever. But um, I came home one day from school, and you know, I had known about the movie from you know reading it about it in Fangoria and such. And um, there was one article in one of the early issues. I can't recall at the moment, but. Um, you know, so I'm, I, I turn it on, I'm watching it, and the scene where he, you know, lures, uh, I think the girl's name from the forest, Kathy Jordan, I think, you know, I think that's her name. And um, that whole scene, you know, watching that as a uh, 14-year-old, I, I was just blown away. Um, it, You know, because I was thinking to myself, God, what am I watching? Like this, you know, Eric said, it almost feels like a snuff movie in some aspect. Um but, you know, the reason why I think I draw to it, too, is they do play him very sympathetically. Like the, the one scene that I always recall, which kind of like gets to me, is the scene where he goes and uh, talks to the priest about, you know, shows him his scars and says how, you know, his mother, you know, about what his mother did to him and stuff. You kind of feel for him, you know, like uh, they play him very sympathetically. And, um, you know, there's an interview with uh, Dan Grimaldi. This is going into background, but real quick. Um, he did say that he did go to a lot of abuse clinics and talk to a lot of abuse people and um he tried to play him as a straight loner which you really get that feeling um but uh and also his relationship with his friend uh bobby from the uh, his uh, job is just funny too and it does have some comic elements like there's a couple funny scenes i always gives not, not that i think you said it's not a laugh out riot you know type of movie but there's a couple chuckle scenes like when bobby's trying to uh coerce him into taking out those two girls and he's hiding it from his wife and just the way he plays his lines out um or to me always makes me laugh but uh no this movie um you know and, and again it has a lot of inf infamous infamous uh things about it where you know it's always like you said it was on the video nasty list and i remember here you know people that every time i mention the movie and they say oh you like that movie you know like they look at you like you're weird or something i'm like well i don't know for me i kind of like it you know and um, i'm a, a stout defender of it so um and it also the way it's shot like a lot of the, the dream sequences with the um when that part where he's on the beach and stuff when he gets dragged underneath by the uh the corpses um into the sand and um and another thing that I thought was kind of strange you know it is very much in line with maniac i mean the same type of 
thing. I mean, you got the abusive mother, you got the mother issues and, you know, the, uh, the whole thing of that. And it's amazing that, you know, like Justin had said, there was no plagiarism because like you said, they were being shot around the same time. Although I think, uh, was shot in 79, but I think it didn't come out like a, I think it waited a year before it came out. I don't know if I'm wrong on that, but, uh, but yeah, now this is one movie I've always wanted to hear you guys thoughts are. Cause I love what, you know, to hear your thoughts. I'm especially on movies I really adore. And this is definitely one of them. Um, but yeah, huge, huge fan. Great, great, great movie. Excellent. Um, Nathan, is this up your alley? I'm sort of like you, Eric, in that um, for the longest time, I wasn't a huge fan of movies that focus on the killer as the main character. But again, and I've said this before, but as I've gotten older, I've grown to appreciate these movies like more and more. Um, and uh, Don't Go in the House, I think, is a, a very good movie. It, um, that poor flower shop lady. I feel so bad for her. And and I know she kind of was a little rude, but hey, she let him in to uh, buy flowers, and she didn't have to do that. Does it pay to be nice? That's the moral I'm taking from the film. Um, but yeah, like the uh, when he kills, um, I believe you said her name was Kathy. Um, when he kills her, like it's it's very brutal, like it's extremely grim, and. Um, I feel the movie walks kind of a, a line in, in being grim, but also kind of having a cheesy quality to it, especially the disco scene. Um, I thought that was a, like a really um, interesting sequence when he sets her hair on fire. But, you know, she was holding his hands like his mom did when um, he was a kid and, and burned him as punishment. So I kind of, you know understand that you know it kind of brought those memories back so you know he set her hair on fire in in return i find movies like this fascinating with the idea of like kind of having this love hate relationship with um with his mother because he was taking care of her but it's like when she dies in a way he's um happy like you said at first he's like going around like playing his music loud smoking probably doing all the things that he wasn't allowed to do when his mother was alive um and and yeah i mean i i, I like the movie a lot um i will admit that the first time i watched it when i was younger i wasn't a big fan because i think with the artwork and a movie with don't in the title i was just expecting a don't go in the woods kind of thing but it's definitely not along those lines whatsoever and um it, i think it was much better than something like don't answer the phone um i liked it a lot better than it but yeah it's it's um, um it's it's a very interesting film very unforgettable i'll say so that's my two cents there were a lot of things we weren't supposed to do back then Go in the house, answer the phone. Justin. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a bit like you guys, really. I kind of, this was, I mean, its reputation preceded it because of the Video Nasty connection. Although I don't think it wasn't one of the, it didn't get prosecuted as a Video Nasty, I don't think. But it did, it was certainly liable for um, being um, uh, sort of uh, taken off to shelves or by the police. And I know the, um, when uh, back in the day, when they, the, the clips they always used to show, um, very brief clips on the news when they were, the whole video nasty thing was going on was the clip of a very short clip of the the woman burning uh, in the in the in that room and also the a similar clip from SS experiment camp of the the bodies in the in the well the the furnace 
uh and they so they use the, the i mean what they did back then i mean if you are not the history lesson of video nasties but they kind of took bits from these movies and uh, presented them on these reels it's almost like stars on 45 of, of gore clips and violence to politicians uh with this kind of views that almost like this and, and another one they used a lot was nightmares and a damaged brain and the scene where the, the infamous scene where the um the little boy decapitates the woman in, in the bedroom. Uh, so they would use these, so it's almost like the, all these films were wall to wall of this kind of violence. Um, and it's interesting, as you mentioned with, like, with this film, that you do have that, that very incredibly violent and disturbing and realistic scene. But the rest of the movie is pretty understated um, when it comes to, in fact, actually, uh, the second murder is not shown at all, is it? I think you just cut straight to the um uh, the, the kind of the, the charred corpse sitting in the in the in the, the chair. I mean, obviously, it owes a big debt to Psycho, uh, the whole idea of the kind of abusive mother uh, and son relationship, and also um, one thing I couldn't quite work out whether or not the in this that you've got um, whether or not uh, he he likes his mother or he's not killing for her, is he? But he's he obviously. And this is one of the things I find the, the creepiest about this movie is the the scenes where you actually see him him seeing the um, the illusion. Well, illusions or kind of um, it's not the right word, but you know, seeing his dead mother's uh, body or or the corpses of the women standing like one time at the top of the stairs staring down at him. Um, and I found those incredibly sort of creepy. I mean, it has it has that kind of grimness to it and that kind of. The films, those early '80s films that shot in winter time, and this was—I think you—you you were right, Leo, when you said that. I mean, this was made between February, and March of 1979, or even January, and March of 1979, and it wasn't released until a year later in March of 1980. But those films, that um, the early '80s films like *Christmas Evil*, although that's obviously a slightly kind of lighter film and more fan fantastical, I can guess. But the, the that kind of cold chilliness of that that kind of early '80s. I um, mean, a film like *American Nightmare* we covered last time, although it's a Canadian movie again. It had that kind of chilliness to it, um, and this film uh, has that kind of. Um, it walks that tightrope between the, um, the the kind of more uh, kind of uh, kind of grim and serious kind of character study of something like a like Repulsion, the Roman Polanski movie, or something along those lines, where it kind of uh, and also those kind of more popcorny things. Although having said that, at the time, obviously discos were omnipresent everywhere, you know, around the world. So for contemporary audiences, watching the disco scene wouldn't have seen so out of place. Although when we come on to some reviews, there was a couple of reviews who, who thought the funniest moments were the um, him getting uh, decked out of the, the disco, well, the, the men's clothes store and the disco sequences. They were making fun of those. So clearly, even then, there was um, there was some kind of, uh, you, you know, they were it, it was seen as a kind of a, um, a kind of figure of fun, a kind of dis disco. And even I mean, this film just squeaked in, didn't it? Just at the death of disco. Um, and one funny little uh, sort of just a, a little bit of background very quickly was that um, this actually talking about disco dying on its feet. Um, there was one newspaper, Evansville Courier, noted that uh, this was brought in as a last minute replacement to Can't Stop the Music because no one went to see it. Um, so, so yeah, it's overall, I think it's a it's a better film than it's given credit to because uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the reviews um especially around the, the you know with video nasty uh kind of uh in 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 sort of infamous nature of it is um that it's a, a bad a bad movie and there's certainly there's things like the 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 scene that you mentioned eric with the um when the main character goes to see the, the priest would be much more impactful if the the person playing the priest could act 
um, and clearly they can't, which which unfortunately does give it that kind of slightly weird off kilter feel. I kind of I, a lot of the people at the time were criticizing the main actor's acting, but I think he does a pretty good job in this. Is it's kind of very blank. He has no personality really because I don't think he's he was allowed one by his mother, so he becomes this kind of killing machine. Um, but he is emotionally this kind of this you know complete blank. Um, so yeah, overall, I think it's a film that's kind of I, I like it more now than when I first saw it. And again, probably like Nathan, I was kind of exp- hoping I was hoping it's going to be another Friday Thirteenth for another kind of more popcorny slasher movie. And it's certainly not that. But again, like you guys, I've kind of grown to appreciate it more um, as as the years have gone by. So yeah, that's my my tuppence worth. Excellent, Joseph. Yeah, I um, with don't go in the house. I have to separate myself from uh. The, the plot and the time period. And I love the time period. Um, I'm watching all this stuff, all the disco music and him wandering the streets of um, wherever this is set. I love stuff like that. But then he takes the um, the florist back home and burns her alive. And while the effect is great, I don't know. I, I like Maniac a lot better than this because I think Maniac does a very good job of kind of uh, delving into the psyche of um, its main character a little better than they did here. Here, he's just another mama's boy, and his mother's dead, so we don't really get much interplay between him and his mother other than the fact that, you know, when, she, when he was a kid, she would burn his arm for punishment. I'm like, so what? Big whoop. My mom used to take my vision away from me when I was bad. You don't see me going out burning women. Come on. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's an okay movie, but it's it's one of those movies I can't really watch. Like Maniac, I can't really watch it that often, but I appreciate what it's trying to do, especially for the time period when you don't really have movies like this that exist in 1979. So it's, it was very brutal and very, you know, very stylistically brutal for the time period. So, um, yeah, I, I can't engage with that kind of, I know who the killer is. I know why he's killing because, um, he's got mommy issues sort of thing. I, I much prefer my, my psychos masked. I like an element of mystery there and it's just missing from these movies. Um, when I'm watching these movies, I, I'm more in love with the time period and, and all the little idiosyncrasies more than I am the, um, actual killing at, on display. So, uh, a marginal recommendation. I'd say see it because it is stylized. It's very well done. But the plot, um, I, I, me personally, I just can't really get past it enough to warrant myself a, a repeat viewing. So, eh, ho hum, middle of the road. One thing I forgot to mention, and Justin mentioned there, is I think the scenes where he has visions of the corpses coming to life or visions of his dead mother alive at the top of the stairs i think they are really creepy as well i think that's what maybe elevates this above yeah other because films of the silk for me yeah I, when i was watching that i was thinking of something along the lines of patrick um well with the way a lot of these um like visions are kind of shown like that one scene in patrick where he's lying in the hospital bed and that one i guess it's kind of like the vision just comes direct view of the camera really quickly it kind of feels like they're doing this similar kind of thing here, and those visions are very startling. So, yeah, I'll give a thumbs up to those as well. Yeah, it gives a kind of a spooky haunted house type feel as well as being a psycho killer movie. Mm. Anything else we want to say on Don't Go in the House? Leo, any other additions? Um, no, I think everybody's uh, said pretty much all they're going to say. Um, I'm glad you guys all liked it, um, you know, because I was always curious to see what you guys would think of it, you know, because I know it's it's got its infamy, you know, people have certain feelings about the movie. I know some, it, it seems kind of not middle of the road either. It's like people either really like it or they don't like it, 
you know, I know uh, that's usually the consensus usually you see when you read, you know, any kind of things about it. So shall we move on to background, Justin? Yeah, why not? Who would like to go first? Leo, what do you what do you have? Anything background you've dug up? Um, yeah, I got some stuff. Um, uh, like I said, uh, I was telling Joseph, uh, this is actually filmed not far from where I live, um, along the Jersey shore, uh, the town called Atlantic Highlands, which is not actually not even far from where Kevin Smith lives. If you could believe that, um, it was filmed in a house. It was called the Strauss mansion, I guess, which was a, uh, at the time was a low income, uh, housing, uh, place that they had, you know, low-income housing people live there, which you'll see a lot of the scenes with the peel, peeling wallpaper um, and stuff. You could tell it was uh, very run down um, at that time. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I also found out that director Joseph Ellison, he actually read for, he, he, I guess he was, you know, his aspirations were in the beginning to be an actor, and he actually read for George Romero for The Crazies. Um, and I guess he did get a call back um, from the assistant, but at the time he was working with, uh, uh, I think it's called the Harkness Ballet. And um, he, since the assistant couldn't guarantee him the role, he passed on it and she said, I can't guarantee it. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to go and spend some time with this ballet uh, thing he was doing at the time. Um, the one thing I found that was really interesting, a lot of the people that worked on the movie um, went on to do, you know, some pretty uh pretty you know famous work um the first assistant editor james Quay or quai i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right um he uh he worked uh on uh, as assistant editor to thelma shoemaker who was obviously scorsese's go-to um, um editor uh with films like uh these goodfellas gangs in new york bringing out the dead in casino and color of money which i thought was kind of crazy um and also uh the composer uh richard einhorn um, went on to do movies I know we all love, uh, Blood Rage he worked on, he composed, and uh, Dead of Winter. And he was also a music arranger on The Prowler, uh, Eyes of a Stranger, and Shockwaves. Um, I also, like I mentioned earlier, Dan Grimaldi, obviously, you know, this was his first acting role, and um, he's now prominently known for playing Patsy Parisi in The Sopranos, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, and, you know, this was his first acting role. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know you guys have other stuff. I don't want to take all the uh, thing. Oh, and I just want to mention the, uh, that song struck by Boogie Lightning is, is amazing. I don't know, but Eric, I'm sure you're a fan of that. And we all are. I do. I do like it. And unfortunately I haven't chosen it for the playout song. I probably should have. That's all I have. I know you guys have plenty of, you guys are great at doing feedback. So I don't want to take all this stuff. I got other stuff, but I'll let you guys continue. Nathan, have you got any feedback? No. Or if not feedback. Back behind the scenes, I mean. Justin. Uh, yes, I have a few uh, bits. Uh, it was originally, I mean, I've mentioned it was um, It was released in March of 1980, which is sort of ahead of Friday the 13th, which came out in, uh, I think it was June of 1980. Although the film did play, not on a double bill, I don't think, but certainly the same multiplex of Friday the 13th. And the director said, um, uh, well, not famously said, but he said that that uh, uh, don't go in the house. Friday the 13th was the perfect date movie for young couples to go to and hug each other and scream and laugh. Um, but he said that um, don't go in the house wasn't such a perfect date movie. He said that uh, if you went, when he went to see Friday the 13th, everyone was screaming and laughing and shouting at screen. But he said when he went to see don't go in the house, everyone was just sat there um, in silence. And uh, at one showing, he said a teenage girl was crying at the end um, uh, and said, oh my God, that was so horrible. 
but he said he didn't think she was talking about the film. She was talking about the uh, the little boy, the kind of circular nature of the film, the the ending with the little boy being being abused by his mother uh, at the end of the movie. Um, the uh, interestingly, uh, Joseph Ellison, considering what how kind of uh, kind of grim I kind of guess the movie is in a lot of ways. Uh, he didn't want to make. He wasn't a fan of horror movies, like a lot of directors at the time. He did this out of purely. He wanted to break into the movie business, and um, he wasn't getting anywhere with his scripts. And he was working on them with his wife, Ellen Hamill. Um, and he was told that the the best way to break into um, into uh, kind of movies was either to make a sex movie or a kind of a, a kind of a you know sort of film like um, uh, sort of Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham did with Together in the early seventies, or those kind of um, sort of semi-born, but not quite necessarily quite born movies, or a horror movie. And he said that he was a bit of a brood, so he didn't want to do that. Although, ironically, Don't Go in the House does actually have some um, nudity in it. Uh, and talking of which, um, the woman who plays the woman gets burnt alive in the basement, she was a playboy centerfold who was a friend of uh, his wife who um, had no problem with getting naked. So that was the reason he said it was actually quite a thing. Although he did say when he was filming that scene and um, Eric mentioned about how they use mirrors and all sorts of things to make it look like that. And he said it, it looked so realistic when he was looking through the camera that even he had to stop, uh, sit up and make sure he wasn't really murdering her for real, um, which of course he wasn't, but uh, he said it looked so real. And he said he kind of did it in that way that he wanted to have this kind of extreme uh, murder at the beginning and then not have any more going going on. He sort of said he kind of set the tone but he didn't feel like he needed to a movie where everyone was, you know, there. it was it was um, like a movie like Friday the 13th um, where the kind of the, the death scenes were the kind of set pieces. Um, he was uh, he was actually a fan of uh, German expressionist films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And uh, interestingly, I mean, you mentioned, Leo, about the ballet um, uh, sort of a sort of troupe that he was involved with. And um uh, or at the the end of the movie where the women come back to life, they were all ballet dancers or 18, 19 year old ballet dancers. And he kind of wanted it to be like um, something out of a German expressionist movie with the way they moved. And uh, and also that because they were kind of younger, thinner, uh, um, to show like, you know, horrible. But the idea that fire damage, obviously when people are burnt alive, they a lot of their fat burns off and their actual bodies are, are, are much skinnier so we wanted that but also that kind of slightly more dancery move of when they that when they move which i think makes it very um uh, realistic yeah when you get set on fire you you tend to dance a lot (laughs) (laughs) there's a couple of things one of the things that we mentioned about the house where he shot it he said it was so cold in there that um when they left a glass of water on the table overnight it actually froze solid um, and there was actually people, there was one guy living in the house um, uh, and he, they was, got so fed up with them filming there, he actually threatened them with a rifle, um, which I thought was quite funny. So the film, you mentioned about the, the year-long wait before the film finished and it got it kind of got released. Uh, and um, that was, he was trying to sell it to places like Paramount. He took it and showed it to Paramount, who obviously were on the market for a, like a low-budget horror movies. And obviously they famously did that saturation release of Friday the 13th. But he said that when after the filming, after the showing to the, the executives, they kind of came out and looked a bit shocked. Um, and he, they were, he, they were saying, we're not saying no, but we want to get some feedback from other studios. And I think it's just a bit too downbeat for, for that. So obviously I think unsurprisingly, although the film I think was financially quite successful, nowhere near so as uh, Friday 13th, but, um, 
he eventually um, uh, sold it, sold the rights to Film Ventures. Uh, and as I mentioned, the producer said that he they changed the name, which was alternatively The Burning, but originally it was called The Burning Man. Um, and the only reason it got changed was because the uh, Film Ventures had a, an ad set and uh, ad, uh, advert ideas for a film called Don't Go in the House. Um, he said that they were kind of ripped off by, or allegedly ripped off, by film ventures and all the film made something like I think Variety said overall about ten million dollars. He said that they saw very little of of that money. Um, and I've got some other bits and pieces, but I'll let you guys go on with the rest. I'll just some a couple of contemporary reviews. But one other thing, he said that actually I did wonder why they didn't use Disco Inferno uh, by the Tramps in the soundtrack. And he said they wanted to, but it would cost too much money because the film was only I think it's budgeted at two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but I think he made it for a, a lot less than that. So, um, but yeah, anyway, I've got some more bits from some uh, uh, contemporary reviews of the time, but um, I'll pass that back to you, Eric. Yes, so I'm guessing we're, we're that yourself and myself, Justin, are uh, going to the tome and the encyclopedia that is Nightmare USA by Stephen Thrower, because this is where I'm sourcing all my background from. There's a particularly juicy chapter on Don't Go in the House uh, within that. Um, so let me see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, Joseph Ellison, uh, as you said, he auditioned for The Crazies, but he went on to work in post-production doing dubbing and editing uh, with uh, a boss called Simon Nocturne. Now, a shiny sixpence for anyone who can remember who Simon Nocturne is. Director of Silent Madness. <gasps> a shiny sixpence is on the way to you, Justin Kurzweil, because he's indeed the future director of Silent Madness. That's it. Um, so, yeah, he was working in uh, for a company that would import foreign films and then dub them, maybe possibly re-edit them for distribution in America. And one of the dubbing actors he used to work with quite regularly was Don Grimaldi, uh, who, of course, went on then, or Dan Grimaldi, sorry, who went on then to play uh, Donnie in this film. Um, yeah, the central effects piece, as we were saying, done with two sets at 90 degrees to each other and filmed through a prism. So one set had a burning dummy, the other had the real actress, and they just had to choreograph the movements of the two and then superimpose the two images. It's very cleverly done for a low-budget film in, in the pre-CGI era. Uh, very effective scene. Um, and the... As Justin said, the woman cast in that role was a Playboy bunny friend, but th there was originally another woman cast in that role, but she was talked out of it by her boyfriend because she basically would have to hang naked from the rafters and be burned alive. Um, yes, filming finished in February of 1979. At that stage, it was titled The Burning, as we've said. The rough cut ran 100 minutes. Uh, which is almost 20 minutes longer than the release print. And apparently the longer version uh, made Donnie to be a far more sympathetic character and there was much more footage of him interacting with the charred corpses who appeared to be alive to him. Uh, a TV version was prepared for mainstream television use, uh, which you know took out all the violence and substituted it with alternate material. Uh, apparently it was never used, uh, and the version is lost in the ether somewhere, and apparently the like the twenty extra minutes is is long gone as well. So I don't think we'll ever be seeing that. Um, over here in the UK and Ireland, it was cut for an X rating in UK cinemas by about three minutes, which I'm guessing was the bulk of the torch scene, uh, sort of half an hour into the film. It was then released uncut on video though by Video Space. Um, of course, then the video nasty scare happened, so it was uh, resubmitted and the original 
cinema version was put out on video by Apex in April of 1987. And then the film finally saw its uh, first uncut release in uh, over 25 years uh, when uh, Arrow brought it out on DVD in 2011. Uh, it played double bills uh, with John Bud Cardas's film *The Dark* back in the day, uh, and the only other thing I have is that uh, Justin, you were talking about some of the dodgy acting. Well, apparently, all the dialogue was post-dubbed; um, it was all done um, in the studio, so that might equate to why some of it is a bit stilted. I think it works for the most part, and I probably, I probably wouldn't have guessed it was all post-dubbed from watching it, just f- uh, from reading it in the the background. So, uh, oh, and by the way, I've just noticed this as well. I went onto the BBFC website on um, uh, this morning, just before we started recording, and Arrow are bringing this out on Blu-ray soon. And the BBFC have listed that it was uh, submitted and cleared for it with an 18th certificate on the 8th of November of this year, which is just a few weeks ago. But it's under the title The Burning, which I thought was weird. Because it has the previous submission for the DVD release in 2011, and that's under the name Don't Go in the House. But this one is The Burning, which I thought was a bit strange. I don't know what to, I don't know what to read into that. Are we getting a different version of the film? I don't know. Well, maybe it is. Uh, maybe it's the original cut of it. Maybe they have found. Maybe they have. Ooh, I'll be definitely buying that if it does. Oh, by the way, one thing as well. I was read. I was just reading a magazine, and they were reviewing and talking about Freddy's Dead. It was a 1991 issue of Cine Fantastique. And just bizarrely that we're covering this film this week, apparently Freddy's Dead was supposed to end with a coda as well, where a child has been abused, and then the dream demons, who are those kind of serpentine creatures that fly around in Freddy's Dead, they approach this child and sort of say, we'll protect you, and all that type of thing. Which is kind of like the way that Don't Go in the House ends. So maybe it was a nod to that, but uh, interesting. Maybe it was, yeah. But that scene, of course, was dropped. But they say it was filmed, but I haven't ever seen it in any DVD or Blu-ray release. Cool. Well, thank you, Eric. I mean, Joseph, have you got anything to add? Yeah, the only thing I have to add is um, if you grew up watching this film, you most likely saw it on that v- uh, media VHS tape, which is kind of dark. Uh, the print's a little dark. Um, if that's not bad enough, um, Video Treasures put it out uh, six years later in 1988. Um, it's, it was in the same box... But the, the tape quality is just poorer. It's one of those budget releases. And it's interesting about this box is that they released the exact same box, same color, same plot line, everything. The only thing different is they've swapped uh, the placement of one picture on the back of each box. And I don't know why they do that. So I looked into it and apparently they, um, uh, Video Treasures could release a lot of the stuff that uh, they would like acquire from other companies if they changed the artwork in some way. And sometimes they were so lazy, they would just swap a picture just so they could get away with it. I thought that was kind of funny reading that, but that's all the uh, all the background I was able to dig up for this week. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. I've got a few other bits to add that which I didn't mention. One of the the things which I thought was interesting was that um, the uh, director said um, that uh, he was offered uh, on the off the success of this, um, he was offered quite a number of what he called slice and dice scripts. Um, so basically, slasher movies around you know the early eighties. So he turned them all down, uh, which is a shame, but he turned them all down because he said he wanted to do a comedy. And him and his wife um, wrote a spec script for a comedy, a horror, basic a spoof of slasher and horror movies called 
wait for it scary movie so he said it never came to anything but he was um a little bit sore he says that uh that obviously uh the his idea was um not necessarily taken i'm sure it would have happened anyway but um that uh, the scary movie um franchise made many millions at the box office and of course was also the original title for uh, west craven and uh, kevin williamson's scream so having said that i would imagine they probably the reason it didn't get a green light was that um Films like Student Bodies and Pandemonium and those other slasher spoofs of the early '80s didn't exactly set the the box office alight. So, um, but yeah, that's a, sadly that never got got made. But um, just a couple of uh, contemporary reviews for the the movie. Um, it actually got one from uh, a newspaper called the Clarion Ledger. Uh, gave a, a relatively good review. It said, if you're easily scared, just don't go in the theatre. But those of you who like movies spiced with screams and brightened by the fresh blood should go right in and have a good time. Although that does actually sound maybe like a review by someone who didn't actually watch the movie, but just had a deadline. But there you go. Um, Alan Jones in Starburst, uh, the UK uh, magazine, um, basically said the, the film had blatantly stolen from Psycho. Uh, he mentioned, as you did, Eric, the, the BBFC had cut two minutes from the film for its UK cinema release. And he did, dismissed Dan Grimaldi as a low-energy Dustin Hoffman, which is a bit harsh. Owen Hardy from the Courier Journal um, said when he saw it, uh, the audience was howling with laughter. Um, and uh, he said the don't films have in common a single crazed protagonist, a number of pretty gullible female victims who have obviously never seen a don't film predictable cinema shock techniques, one-dimensional acting, and a sudden mixture of sex with grisly violence. Um, so again, it all comes back down to the fact is we know, obviously, at the time, these films were were, were not favourably reviewed. Um, Ed Blank, uh, just a couple more, Ed Blank in the Pittsburgh Press gave it a bad review, um, but did say that the scene where Grimaldi turns up the music and jumps up and down on his chair like a sort of five-year-old who's home alone. It was uproariously funny, but he said the music, disco music was so loud he had to turn down his speaker at the Woodland Drive-In. And lastly, uh, a ray from the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, they said it's a sick, sick movie about a man who likes cremating people alive. Those involved with this film's creation should be ashamed of themselves. So anyway, that's uh, one for the box office art. So, um, uh, uh, sorry, the, bo the box art. So, um, yeah, so that's all the background I think I have on this. So, uh, yeah, a good job team. And thank you, Leo, for your insight on it, and especially if somebody who's, who's local to the area as well. Yeah, actually, the you can actually go to this house now. It's actually a historical museum. Um, you could go there during the summer. It's open. Um, you could tour the house. And on the uh, Scorpion uh, Blu-ray, there's actually like a, uh, you know, then and now. And they, the guy walks through the house. And believe it or not, a lot of the, the, the stairwell, um, the rooms like where uh, his mother was in the kitchen, the stove is actually still there. It's pretty amazing that it, it's hardly changed at all. It's pretty incredible. Great stuff. So, uh, well, Joseph, what was the kind of the consensus on the group on this movie? Well, let's see. Uh, 55 comments, which is pretty good for this type of film. On Don't Go in the House, not bad. Um, let me spin the wheel here, and we have Confluence of Cult, and they write, I like it quite a bit. It's very dark and nihilistic. Would make a perfectly unsettling, depressing triple feature with Maniac and Nightmare. And, yeah, Nightmare is another one we didn't mention. Very similar oh, yeah. in tone. Um yeah, Graham Wright wrote in and he says, I've not seen it since a double bill in UK cinemas in the early 80s, but I remember it being mean-spirited and boring. Probably need to give it another watch, 
but I'm not the biggest fan of films like this and don't answer the phone where you know who the killer is right from the start. Uh, follow us on the socials. You know where they are. Listen on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and about a billion other podcatchers. And Eric has agreed to give Soapy Steve a bath on his OnlyFans for the next five people to join <gasps> us on Soapy Patreon. Steve. I don't know yeah. where Soapy Steve is anymore. Yeah, the next five people to join us on Patreon gets a video of uh, Eric giving Soapy Steve a bath. Uh, that's patreon.com forward slash the hysteria continues. Death threats, but mostly positive feedback is welcomed at the hysteria continues at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, thank you for, for that. So, yeah, it's a divisive movie, but it's, I think it's been given some love today. So that's good. But I'm sure something that won't be given a lot of love is this. <laughs> It's my joke of the week. It's so, so Do you know what? I think that Donnie should have set up a brothel in his house. He would have made a killing with all those hot chicks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eric. Well, look, at least for once it wasn't a pun on somebody's name or the title of the film. Yeah, small miracles. <laughs> Don't listen to Eric's joke of the week. <gasps> Rude. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. Well, what we um, what are we covering next time? Whose choice is that? I'm trying to remember. Well, it would be it would be mine, but it's also our Christmas episode. So, let's talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night Three. Better watch out. <laughs> I can't my remember thoughts, what it's like, but I'm, I'm just guessing. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Although it's kind of preemptive, I don't really remember the movie all that well. I've so. never seen it, so it'll be a fresh watch for me. So, have you seen that one, Leo? Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the uh, sequels. They're 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 very off the wall and uh, silly, but they're fun at the same time. Yeah, that's definitely one that you guys will have fun with that. Okay, and uh, well, thank you, Leo, uh, so much for coming on with your insight. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show so um hopefully it won't be too long before we have you back so has it been everything you dreamed of uh yeah no it's <laughs> been it's been a blast you guys are amazing you know i love you guys very much i love the show i'm a big avid supporter and i push on all my friends and i've made a lot of people in my life listen to you that are interested in horror plenty and uh you got a strong supporter here in new jersey and um, i thank you and very much appreciate your time and your all, all you guys do, especially during last year with the uh, pandemic, uh, was very helpful for a lot of people, myself included. Um, you know, many, many days you couldn't smile, but you guys all bring a smile to my face. Oh, what a gooey bastard. <laughs> well, Did you say you. gooey bastard? Yes. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm just not, well, I figured since I get to talk to everybody, I just want to let you guys all know. I want to me to express myself verbally. That's all. No. Sorry, Joseph. No, we appreciate it very much. <laughs> Leo, thank you ever so much for the kind words. It's uh, it's a rarity sometimes, so it's it's nice to hear. And um, yes. and uh, what we uh, well, we've all covered what we're covering next time. But what are we playing out with, Eric? Okay, well, it would have made sense to go with Boogie Lightning from the film, but I had already chosen and sent to you Burning Down the House by Talking Heads. Oh, good one, excellent. Okay, well, we shall play out with that, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time for our festive. I'm not sure if it's an extravaganza. Well, there will be a quiz, by the way. And I might sing. I might sing a nice Christmas carol for you. If you come up with a special carol for us, that'll be something that get everyone tuning in. Yeah, I might sing Away in the Manger, because it's all about baby Jesus during this time of year. So, okay, well, join us uh, for our festive show next time on Hysteria Continues. And also, as they mentioned, over on Patreon, we've got lots of good stuff going on there. We're halfway through the, well, um, 
1996 next month. So this month's 95. And uh, what else? What did we cover? What was the other movie we covered? Dead and Buried. Of course, yeah, Dead and Buried. And also uh, the Fango Flashback as well, which has been a lot of fun. So yeah, if you fancy listening to those, head over to Patreon. Uh, and again, thank you, Leo, for being such a strong supporter. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully you'll be around a lot longer and you'll be back on the show soon. So um, playing out with Talking Heads. Uh, so, uh, Leo, it's your chance to say goodbye to the good people. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>